We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. If all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals and incomprehensible people, fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves. So writes Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, a multiple prize-winning author who's also Nigerian and often touted as the most prominent of young Anglophone African writers. Africa comprises... 54 countries, over 2,000 languages, and 1.4 billion people. Yet the word Africa remains a synonym for many for poverty, starvation, corruption, conflict, or even safaris. So where does our monolithic view of Africa come from, and what does it miss? Depot Fallion's new book, Africa is Not a Country, paints a portrait of the modern continent as a mosaic and coalition. He is a senior editor at Vice, and he joins me in the studio today. Hello, Depot. Hi, how are you? Nice Nice to be here. Diva, you open the book with the phrase, I'm not generally African, I am Nigerian. So what does being particularly Nigerian mean to you? And what brought you to want to write this book about that? Well, I mean, being Nigerian for me, that connects me to my roots. It's who I am. It's who my family are. It's how I got to be where I am today. And I think what was important for me when putting this book together was to connect the reader to an individual, Mm -hmm. to see that, you know, as I start the book by saying, I'm not generically African, you know, I have very specific experiences, a very specific past, which is the same for billions of people across the continent, you know, but that specificity is something that hasn't really been respected Mm. of Africans in the African continent. You know, people would rather see the entire region as a singular monolith with predetermined destinies rather than a region that's like anywhere else in the world that, you know, can be anything and everything, you know. And so it it was really important for me to to try and first up get the reader to connect with the region on a human level. Mm. And Nigeria is at the heart of your experience and also many events that come up throughout the book. Is it frustrating to you, like you said, when Africa gets clubbed together as this great monolith? And do you feel like there's a responsibility almost in this book, even in its title, that in your particular experiences, you're still having to speak for all of Africa in some ways? Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, the disclaimer of the book is important to say that I'm not trying to pretend like I have the singular vision Mm. of this region. What I want to do for the reader is to kind of switch their mindset you know, too many people have grown up with this idea of Africa as a singular monolith. They find it so easy to picture Africa as a place of deprivation and starvation and struggle and very little else, you know. And so 
the aim of this book is to open people's minds and to make them think in a different way and and approach the region the same way they approach every other region in the world, you know, mm-hmm. to think of it as complex places with complex histories and presence. And there can be anything from, you know, stories of great joy to, you know, stories of struggle. Let's come on and talk about some of those stories then, because reading this book, I learned so much and many of your experiences were so different to mine, but also so much seemed to connect to my own lived experience Mm. in a diaspora of family and community Mm. and things like that. And I found that this was as much a sort of philosophical text about what it means to be human as what it means to be particularly Nigerian or particularly Mm -hmm. African. Was that element of personal storytelling important to you when writing this? Do you think that that can help to rehumanize and restore agency to people who are often deprived it in the way that we talk about it today? Yeah, absolutely. I think often when we talk about Africa, we look at it from, you know, a thousand miles high up in the air, or we look at it from the lens of, you know, safari. And and that just isn't the reality for most people on the mm. ground. You know, they live full, colorful detailed personal lives and you know it's so it's so important for me that when people read the book you know they see my own personal story but they see themselves through my personal story you know they 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 start to connect with certain things and they start to say oh yeah you know your you know your family's day-to-day quirks are similar to my family's day-to-day quirks and you know though it's set in a different environment, somewhere that they may never have visited. You know, you start to imagine yourself in that environment. You know, you know, you start to picture what it would be like for you to work and live there, to raise a family there, to start a business there, perhaps. And that's the thing that's been missing in discussions about Africa. You know, people are not given the room to to imagine the places somewhere that they can be and live. You know, they see it as this abstract place where, you know, you send donations to, you know, but you don't really engage with it in a real way. And I choose, uh, you know, as a writer to help people connect through my own personal story, to help paint a real picture of of sort of humanity. And I think a lot of that humanity is something that we haven't put enough emphasis on when we've had discussions about the region. Mm. So tell me about your personal history then. Where did you grow up? So I, I was actually born in America, but at a young age moved to Lagos, which is where my family are historically from. Lagos is a wonderful, complicated, beautiful, strange city, mm-hmm. as all the great cities are. You know, it's, it's 20 million people, as I write, unburdened by self-doubt. And what that does is it creates a climate where confidence really is the most important personal skill you could have. You know, you just go in your day-to-day trying your hardest as everyone else is to to make it in this in this vast mm. city and so it's such a special unique place to me you know because even lagos is somewhere that you can't you can't put in one box you know you can't just say oh lagos is is this or it's that you know it, it's it's many different things to its inhabitants and you know for me i think there are very few places as you know just wonderfully unique as lagos and I start the book taking the reader to Lagos so that, you know, hopefully they see an example of a truly colourful, complex city. And of course, there are, you know, dozens and dozens of these cities across the region that are just as unique and just as specific. And hopefully by reading about Lagos, you know, our family's hometown, people will start to be curious about the other cities that are similar to Lagos. I absolutely love that chapter, the opening chapter, because it's very lyrical in the way that you write it, but it's also very complex as a city. You talk about how it's a combination of fresh fruit and diesel in the air. Mm. 
But I also got the impression that it was more cosmopolitan to perhaps mm-hmm. some of the other cities of your experience. You talk about how anyone has the potential to be an insider if they mm-hmm. want to be. And I wonder, do you feel like there's a sense that it's actually more progressive, perhaps more cosmopolitan than places like Chicago or London where you live now? Yes, uh, I, th- I think there is a wonderful element about Lagos that, you know, anyone is welcome. Nigeria itself is this vast nation of, you know, over 200 million people, you know, three main ethnic groups, but dozens, if not hundreds of languages. And Lagos is one of those cities where it doesn't really matter what your background is. You know, you're you're welcome to come and just and try your luck in this city. Mm. And one thing I want to, you know, I try to stress in the book is that there are no attempts here to, to kind of hide away from the struggles that are in certain places. You know, Lagos can be an incredibly difficult city for people to live in. You give a very ambitious sort of 40-page potted summary of Mm. European colonialism in Africa, which I very much admire you for, (laughs) which covers everything from the Berlin Conference and the scramble for Africa to the bored king Leopold Mm. II of Belgium, who received the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1885, basically just to keep him occupied, by your your words. But I want to focus on how this history creates the same conditions and Mm -hmm. the problems that Africa is stereotyped with facing Mm -hmm. now. So can you Tell me a bit about maps and borders in particular. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, everything starts with the Berlin Conference. You know, I think one of the most important things to remember when we talk about Africa is that these countries are entirely man-made. They are artificial nations that make very little sense. You know, in 1884, the colonial powers met in Berlin to come up with a set of rules that they would abide by in order to invade and carve up Africa for their own use. And they didn't do this, you know, for the interests of the people on the ground, you know, the the architects, the poets, the teachers who had established their communities across Africa. You know, they did this for their own purposes to enrich themselves. And what they did was that they created countries that had as a founding factor instability, you know, they put together ethnic groups that didn't speak the same languages, that didn't worship the same gods, that didn't necessarily have moral compasses pointing in the same direction. You know, they, they forced them into these singular nations and they did so with the hope that these new inhabitants would find it hard to organize against the colonialists. You know, if you don't speak the same language, if you don't have the same principles, then, you know, you, it's harder to find common ground so you can fight against the colonialists. So that's... At their core, you know, these these countries were built to be unstable. And again, many of these colonists and explorers, they didn't really know much about the realities on the ground. You know, they they'd sort of explored the outskirts of, of Africa, but the actual realities of, of who lived where and what was in what place was largely a mystery to them. So what ended up happening was that they drew these borderlines that were incredibly inaccurate, but also... And in about 30% of all cases were just straight lines. Mm. Um, And these straight lines just cut through ethnic groups, splitting ethnic groups between countries. Some borderlines don't actually exist in reality. You know, the colonialists basically said, oh, yeah, this country can kind of end at the river over there without realizing that, you know, the river might from time to time uh, shift directions or change shapes, which literally means that countries will change shapes. Mm. And so these that is the reality that countries faced when independence came along in the 1960s. You know, they were faced with these countries where internally, 
they had struggled up until then to build national identities because there was such a huge difference between the citizens on the ground in terms of the languages they spoke and their histories. And that has sort of fed into a lot of the the challenges that many African countries have faced ever since then, you know. But it's also a story of triumph in that many of these countries, despite the fact that they were created effectively to fail and they were created purely just to profit colonialists, you know, many countries have have found stability in a very short period of time. You know, these are very, very young countries. Mm. Nigeria is, you know, a great nation that has had a huge influence on the world already, you know, but it's also a country that's younger than my parents. And that's something that's, you know, incredibly important for people to realise. Yeah, I was really struck by that because the stereotype that you unpick throughout the book is this idea of dictatorial rule and big men leaders, the, the figures mm-hmm. that we're familiar with, people like Idi Amin. Mm-hmm. But actually, less than 10% of the country is under despotic rule at the moment. So I was wondering if you could tell me about some of the leaderless movements and some of the women who are at the forefront of Africa at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we see throughout the region these youth-led movements that are trying to shape the future of the continent. And many of them, you know, we, we the, the most famous was the NSARS movement, which was, you know, led almost entirely by, you know, women and you know, these movements are largely trying to learn from the mistakes of the past. You know, when it came very close to independence in a lot of countries, what the colonial powers would do was that they then empower scrupulous men, often military men, trained men who were slick to a bribe and, you know, the, the effectively the worst amongst us, empower them, put them in leadership roles to, to sow division and chaos within their own nations. And that led to these constant power struggles mm. um, throughout the the region. And so a lot of the, the movements that we're seeing today throughout the region from young people who are organizing over the internet and social media, they're trying to learn those lessons and they're trying now to to not put, you know, power at the forefront of the movement, but also but instead to to try and democratize activism and to say that, you know, everyone has a role to play in the future of their of these young nations and, you know, that there's so much so much great opportunity to to really shape these nations in a way that is very different to what the colonial powers imagined mm. um, back during the independence era. So back in October 2020, Namibia declared a state of emergency with respect to a case of femicide and wide-ranging sexual and gendered violence in the region. Do you think that this way of managing sex and gender-based violence could be a model for the way that Western and European police forces might look to reform in the wake of Sarah Everard? Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, the two cases are fairly similar. In October 2020, a young woman by the name of Shannon Vossoval in Namibia went missing and she went missing. She was gone for months and the response by the government and the police was so insufficient. But she wasn't the first person to go missing. You know, across the country, they'd seen similar cases over the last sort of two years before Boswell's disappearance. She was eventually found in a shallow grave and and the sheer tragedy of the story moved young people to start protesting. But not only did they protest, they created a very, very detailed plan for the government as to, you know, this is exactly what we want to see change in the country. And what that entailed was it gave the government a very clear blueprint as to how they were going to move forward. 
and how they wanted to move forward. But first and foremost, they called for a state of emergency to say, you know, this country cannot carry on this way when, you know, half the nation is in fear for their lives. And, you know, that declaration included everything from, you know, retraining of police officers to re-education in schools to the way in which, you know, the government addressed each case of of gendered violence. And so I think that that's certainly something that countries can learn and, and movements can learn in terms of kind of setting boundaries for governments. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Do you think there's still a reluctance, though, from many Western and European nations to admit or to seek to learn from what's happening in different African countries at the moment? And I suppose, conversely, do you think that in African countries there's a sense of hypocrisy when we see Western nations still practising intervention? I'm thinking a lot about your later passages where you talk about the capital riots and how they were perceived in Africa. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge we still have in much of the Western world is the impact of, you know, the development agency and charities and the way in which the continent is depicted in, in popular culture, so in films and mm. in books. And, and you know, often the challenge that is kind of put back onto people across the region who who bring up these frustrations with these stereotypes as well, you know, how else do you expect to, how else do you expect us to fix Africa's problems? And I think, well, you know, it's always just so sad to hear that people consistently, when they think of Africa, they see it as a problem rather than, you know, this vast region of of vast experiences and, and vast destinies. And I think that, you know, that's the thing that it becomes incredibly hard to to get people to see the region in a different way when they're still bombarded with, you know, images of of, of babies with flies, you know, mm. revolving around their heads, you know, of, of, of mothers in tears, of of areas where there's no food or water and and without any sort of context as to the the that specific crisis you know we and you know when you have songs like do they know it's christmas you know still playing and you know song a song that still speaks of africa as a place where you know people can only hope for life every year and uh, you know where nothing but tears flow and rivers don't and there's no water you know it's it's incredibly hard to paint a different picture when that is what people still see in popular culture yeah and so that's you know one of one of the hardest challenges and and then you get situations you know as you mentioned where for example in the u.s during the last elections where you know you have a sitting president who who refuses to leave office and he's holding on to power and he incites you know his supporters to attack the u.s capitol building and then you have reporters talking about how you know this is in america this is this is more like you know what you see in in africa and in third world countries and and then you have to ask yourself you know why is it that they believe that that is that you know a dictatorship or a coup or that is an african thing when you know as as you pointed out earlier you know less than 10 percent of the continent right now is under Mm. is under any sort of dictatorial rule and so you know it's it's these it's it's sort of the laziness of thought and the laziness of imagery that has maintained these stereotypes. 
And I think it's not just the laziness, but it's the persistence of images. And Mm -hmm. let's come on and talk about popular culture because it absolutely colours your book and it's wonderful. I could not believe the fact that there have been 51 Tarzan films since 1912. And really at the heart of it, it's the story of a white man raised by animals who is still more capable of political leadership, apparently, than the local uncivilized, as you call Mm -hmm. them, Africans. And I really do think that this book is not a typical history because, like I said, you have this very lyrical form of writing and you use art to talk about these stereotypes and actually to reveal Africa's diversity and the healthy competition between the different countries. Mm-hmm. One thing I one thing I would really love to talk about is a passion and something very close to my heart, which is food. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the Jollof Rice Wars and how they really embody that sense of healthy competition? Yeah, I mean, the Jollof Rice Wars is a, a really, really great healthy rivalry within West Africa. Uh, most West African countries countries have a version of this one dish called jollof rice and you know everyone kind of consistently talks about you know which country has the best version and and it's just it's and why i wanted to include that conversation in the book is because you know it's a literal way of of explaining that you know each individual country not only has their you know personal literal seasonings and and their own preferences you know but also they have managed to build huge amounts of national pride again in these artificial countries you know they, they've taken huge strides in the last few decades to to be passionate about their own countries to really want to create cultures that are that are that are new and fresh and that it shows you know even something when it comes to food you know something that, that it means a lot to people and that their specific countries and their achievements are are respected and you get that in kind of healthy rivalries i mentioned you know the african nations cup and and, you know, the, these are just examples. And there are so many other examples of how, you know, countries take such pride in their own individual achievements and the things that set them apart from other nations. And, you know, it's such a shame that that just outside of the region isn't respected, it mm. isn't appreciated. And, you know, it's something that's just such a frustration. Um, and so you'll have these nations feel so passionate about, you know, specific cultural tags of their nations. But then you'll watch a film and you'll see, you know, quote unquote Africans with these African accents depicted in these singular ways of, you know, often it's just they're working in a safari park somewhere and they're sitting around waiting for someone from the West to come and save the day. Mm. Um, and so, you know, they, people see those things and it, it, it can just be so incredibly frustrating. And you talk about the importance of accents when we talk about films like Black Panther, mm-hmm. for instance, as well, and even coming to America. Mm-hmm. What role do you think those kind of films have served in shaping our view of these countries in the popular imagination? The difficulty is that unfortunately there haven't really been enough of these sort of films who have at least made some effort to try and create a vision of an African country that is specific, you know, that it that doesn't aim to represent the whole region. Mm. Um, you know, why I talk about Coming to America and Black Panthers is that both films make a huge effort to try and depict African nations whose destinies are in their own hand, you know, whose people are not sitting around waiting for another aid package to get delivered, you know, their their destinies and their futures are something that they control. And they try and be as specific as possible, you know, in the, in the way the the characters dress and in the way they speak. And, and, you know, of course, you know, in both cases, you know, both countries, you know, don't exist. But 
it's about the intent and we just don't really see that intent um, mm. elsewhere. And, you know, the success of both films have shown that, you know, people really want to, you know, not only people from across Africa, but people in the diaspora, as well as people who are genuinely curious about Africa, who who think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to explore this region that I know nothing about, but who might fear that, you know, it's, it's an unstable place where, you know, warlords just roam the streets snatching up children or mm. you know if i go there then the only thing i could possibly do is work for a charity and 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 feed starving children you know the most important thing is that we start to see vast stories of of success of failure of love of 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 comedies you know and i think that's something that is really missing across the the pop culture landscape I want to come on and talk a little bit about social media because mm. Coney 2012 was the most viral YouTube video in history. Mm. Do you think that it helped to connect people within and without Africa or did it perpetuate something that you refer to as the white saviour complex? Yeah, I mean, it certainly perpetuated the white saviour complex. You know, when you watch the film, a lot of the images of hope and and joy came when the filmmakers were in the West and in uh, in America. I mean, quite literally with visual yeah. cues, it would be scenes of lightness yeah. when they pan over to America and scenes of darkness yeah, was, when they're in was, Africa. It was just darkness and pain when they were in Africa, and and suddenly when we when we when we when we had hope that the future could be better, you know, they were they were never in Uganda, you know, they were always in Washington, and that sort of imagery is what charities have leaned on mm. uh, for decades to to get these quick fix donations. And, you know, Invisible Children, the charity, they knew that they could use similar imagery. You know, that's the imagery that the filmmakers would have, been, would have grown up seeing to push the same images of, of pain and suffering, you know. And for a short period of time, you know, by their metrics, it worked. You know, in within a week, it became the most watched YouTube video in history, they got the attention that they they wanted, but it also sparked a really, really deep frustration yeah. across Africa because, you know, people saw, they saw what they'd been seeing their whole lives, you know, and, and, and especially in this case, there were just so many factual things that the film got wrong. The biggest of which was that, you know, Joseph Kony wasn't even in Uganda. Yeah. And so I think that that's certainly a film that is an example of, of this sort of this idea of white saviorism, the idea that, you know, hope and joy across Africa can only come when cradled in the arms of whiteness. You know, but unfortunately, even since Coney 2012, you know, this is the 10 year anniversary, still, you know, we haven't done enough to shift the West's perception of Africa. You know, Africa is still seen as a region that is universally suffering and that constantly needs to be fixed. And well, I think that's such a really unfortunate thing. I think former Prime Minister Tony Blair once referred to Africa as a scar for the yeah. world to come together to heal. And I'm glad that you point out about how Africans themselves perceive the international discourse about Africa. Something your book really hones in on is what you mentioned earlier about the problematics in things like comic relief, live aid, the lyrics of Do They Know It's Christmas, which mm -hmm. never even mention Ethiopia and the mm -hmm. famine, which they're supposedly raising money for. Yeah. You also talk a lot about the unintended consequences of this copious but perhaps careless fundraising. Do you think that the ends ever justify the means when it comes to things like comic relief? I think when you're dealing with human lives, you know, you can't skip over 
facts. Mm. You can't think to yourself, you know, oh, I have the answers over and above kind of what the people on the ground want. Yeah. Um, and I think that it has become incredibly unhealthy for us to think of it in terms of, oh, well, you know, we raised money, we sent money, we helped, you know, a, a dozen or a few dozen people who needed immediate support. And, you know, no doubt that that these charities and develop agencies are filled with people who genuinely want to help. But unfortunately, kind of our focus on the ends will justify the means has meant that in many cases, you know, we've seen more harm being done than good. You know, you look at something like Kony 2012, and in that case, you know, Uganda had been enjoying years of uh, increased tourism revenue up until 2012, and suddenly the film comes out and that drops Mm. um, in the years after that. You see it in the way, you know, rebel groups in Ethiopia were able to use a lot of the aid suddenly pouring into their country for their own for their own means. And so these these are the challenges that these organizations face when they don't give the right context. And the aim of the book is to provide the context that is often missing in these discussions mm. about poverty and, and aid and and the history of these countries. You know, it's 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 far more complicated than a 30 second TV ad paints it out to be. And it's so important to understand the realities of it, because then you start to to see that the solutions will inevitably come from the people in the countries um, mm. who are, in every single case, has been have been working incredibly hard to to fix the parts of their countries that need fixing, to promote the bits of their nations that are in great shape, and those two things, like they do in the UK and in America or in, you know, in, in other Western countries can can coexist. You know, you can have challenges within your nation and you can also have, you know, wonderful success stories. And a lot of African countries are not saying that, you know, there are no challenges in our countries, but it's to say that there is more to that singular story. Talking of creating opportunities and solving one's problems for oneself, in 2019, Ghana held its year of return. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that and whether it puts Africa rather than perhaps the US, which would have traditionally been perceived as the place of opportunity mm. in the 20th century, as the place that's open to everyone? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a re- it was a really brilliant initiative by Ghana. You know, their invitation was out to the entire diaspora. Unfortunately, obviously, because of slavery and, and the the horrible ills of that. You know, there are lots of people across the world who are unaware of their past and do not know, you know, where in Africa that they're from. And Ghana said, you know, if that is you, or if, you know, if you just want to reconnect with this region in a way that's real, come to Ghana and we will teach you about, you know, the history of the region, but also the present. And you have an opportunity to build something new and fresh for yourself into the future. You know, come to our country and engage with it in a way that's real. Mm-hmm. And that was such a brilliant initiative. And it's something that African countries have been trying to do for a long time. And it's so essential that people engage with these countries in real ways, because then you can start to picture yourself there. You can start to imagine raising a family there, starting a business. And the year of return was was something that was successful because it, having real connections with this region is something that so many people want to do, mm-hmm. but they've never had an opportunity to do it. They've never really seen a path that has created, or they've never really seen a path that they can take to 
engage with a specific country. And so I think that, you know, the more initiatives like the Year of Return, where you say to people, you know, come to our countries and see what we're about for yourself, you know, hopefully will help change the world's perception of Africa. And people kind of see it not through, you know, popular culture that depicts, you know, Africans as just sitting around in tribal groups waiting for support, but, you know, as something that you can influence, but in a way that is that is set by the people who are actually on the ground. Mm. And Deepa, just to finish, you talk a lot in the book about the destructive potential of maps and borders and referring to Africa as this monolith. Mm-hmm. I noticed that your book is covered with the map of mm-hmm. Africa and these borders. And I want to ask, what is your intention for it? What do you hope that your book will achieve? And do you ever worry that by marketing something as being about Africa, mm-hmm. it reinforces that stereotype of the whole rather than these particular individual stories that you've shared with us? Yeah, I think a number of things I want the book to achieve. Firstly, you know, I, I want it to shift the way we engage with this region. It's it's not about painting a picture of the entire continent. It's about saying, you know, there are so many wonderful stories throughout this region for people to engage with, for people to understand. Um, the aim of the book is really to, to break these stereotypes while also giving people a roadmap as to where to go looking for more information about specific countries. Um, you know, one of the important things about, you know, when we were thinking about the cover and and how we sort of market this book was to, was to try and spotlight individual countries, which is, you know, why you know, for the cover, you know, it's sort of zoomed in on very specific countries. So people, as soon as they see, you know, everyone can recognize a map of Africa, you know, but when you when you really zoom in, hopefully when you look at the book itself, you see these individual nations. Mm. You see many of the straight lines that we talk about throughout the book. You see the sort of damage that was caused by that when you start to read about the founding of these nations and everything that happened in the decades after that. And so the aim of the book as well is to hopefully get you know, one of the one of the most amazing things that I've experienced since the book has been out is the amount of teachers, geography teachers and history teachers who have really embraced this book and have started kind of teaching it in their classes. Mm. Because, you know, there's there's nothing in the curriculum right now that really talks about the Berlin Conference and, and, the, and the UK's role in inventing these nations. And one thing that's really key to me is that, you know, this is not just a book about African history. You know, the history of Africa is also the history of the UK mm-hmm. um, and the impact that people from across Africa have had in the UK, you know, means that this is also a book about the UK's present and the cultural influences that people from across the region have had all across the world. And hopefully that will start to help shift the way we uh, the way we teach history in this country, the things that we choose to embrace, the things that we choose to leave out, unfortunately. Are quite vast. And I think that, you know, it's not about conflict. It's not about kind of blaming anyone for their role in the past, but it's about helping people to to be able to tell a more accurate story of this region and of the UK's role in this region, importantly, so that we don't make the same mistakes in the future. I love that idea of the book perhaps being covered with a roadmap rather yeah. than a political one as a way of exactly. looking forward. Deepa, thank you ever so much for joining me today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Africa is Not a Country is available in all good bookstores now. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. 
Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this one, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp. You can also back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcasts. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the bunker. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. I'm Rob Hutton and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. So I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon, and I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis and Saturn Sangara as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Yelena Sofronievich. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Alex Reese and Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>